Welcome to episode number 37 of 100 Plus, a historical overview of the most important people, places, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. This is a survey of the forces and factors that have shaped today's world, the Christian faith, and you. If these podcasts have been helpful to you, we hope you subscribe and share with your friends. Today's episode is the third part in our overview of the Protestant Reformation, which started when a young Augustinian monk nailed 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, and became one of the most influential revolutions in Western civilization. We've been focused on one of the true pivot points of Western civilization, the Protestant Reformation which happened in the 16th century when Martin Luther, the, uh, the young Augustinian monk with a mallet, set out to correct a problem he saw in the medieval Catholic Church. Uh, he was serving there. He did not intend uh, to split the church in two, but that is what happened. This is the third of three uh, lectures on the Reformation. In the first, we looked at the challenges inside the medieval church, uh, principally the corruption that was uh, by no means total, but there was a real problem. Uh, and, the, and additionally, there were ways in which the gospel had been corrupted, uh, distorted, especially with regards to issues of uh, repentance and justification. We also tracked a young Martin Luther from birth up to his appearance at the Diet of Worms. In the second uh, podcast, number 36, we followed Luther as he attacked indulgences and ended up excommunicated by both the Pope and the Emperor. We then saw he was kidnapped um, by the, uh, by the uh, employees of Frederick the Wise. He spent a year in the castle in Wartburg uh, and then returned to, to Wittenberg to uh, calm things down, but then to press forward and lead the Reformation. We also uh, explored a little bit about his marriage, his death, and some of his writings. So in today's lecture, we get a bit more theological, and um, some of the issues perhaps uh, you will find to be a little bit deeper. Maybe I should apologize now. This is not the deep end of the pool by any means, but it may be a little bit deeper. We're going to focus on what are referred to as the five solas. Uh, this is a shorthand phrase for uh, saying we're going to discuss the theological principles that Luther and the other reformers will, will argue are the, uh, the essentials of the Christian faith, and uh, they will put in place in Protestant churches. These were not the initial issues that were being debated. Uh, let me remind you that Luther, by his own admission, stumbles into this. Uh, he did not set out to, you know, to launch a, a church, to split the Catholic church and to launch a new church. Uh, not only did he not set out to do what he did, um, but when he first started voicing his objections, uh, they were almost all about indulgences. And um, if you read the 95 Theses, he does not sound like, um, like a reformer. He sounds like a, a Catholic. Uh, when he nailed these things uh, to the door, he was mad at Tetzel, and he was mad at, at Tetzel, this um, indulgence hawker, and he was quite confident that... Uh, uh, everybody shared his frustrations and that um, he, he argues at one point that uh, Tetzel is undermining the Pope and uh, the honor due to the Pope. And uh, he will also talk about works. So he's not going to sound uh, early on like he's going to sound at the end. So the, the Reformation ends up, first of all, being much bigger than Luther, and it was always bigger than Luther, 
But um, the Reformation ends up being uh, about a number of things that are not talked about initially. The five that we're going to focus on emerge as the five um, sort of capstones, and um, you hear them brought out from time to time as a sort of a summary of uh, the Reformation or as a, as a call to the church today, which needs to continually be reforming itself. So before we go to the five solos, let me do two things. First of all, uh, I want to know, I am going to speak as a Protestant, um, a Protestant pastor at that. Uh, I obviously disagree with Roman Catholic theology on a number of points. That said, I, am, I will try my best to be fair and accurate. Um, the 15th and 16th centuries were not a good moment for the Catholic Church. As I've noted before, it's not just Luther saying that. Lots and lots of people are saying that. And indeed, there will be a Roman Catholic Reformation that follows the Protestant Reformation. This used to be called the Counter-Reformation. Uh, that's no longer considered PC. I'm not entirely sure why, but uh, suffice it to say, everyone was agreeing that there were some problems uh, at the time. Uh, I want to be gracious. Um, it seems that at this present cultural and political moment, um, everybody's painting everybody else in the worst possible light. I, I do not want to do that. Protestants and Catholics take cheap shots at each other. Uh, I've heard people say in the medieval church, nobody read the Bible at all. Well, that's not true. First of all, uh, not a lot of people could read. Uh, fewer people could read Latin. Uh, very few people had books. So yes, th there was not a lot of reading going on, but it was not because um, the church was, uh, the Catholic Church was against the Bible, as we would say. Now, um, that said, Catholics and Protestants disagree on um, the list of problems and on how to fix them. So if you were listening to a lecture by a Roman Catholic um, on the Protestant Reformation, you would hear, no doubt, very different things than I'm going to say. So if you're Catholic and you think I am misrepresenting uh, the views of the Catholic Church, I am sorry, and uh, please feel free to let me know. Uh, I do not expect us to agree. And I not only suspect that some of what I say makes you mad um, and that you will think on a variety of points that I'm wrong, but I don't want to misrepresent your views. So, having said that, let me also take some time to define a number of terms that pop up in this kind of a discussion and that are easily uh, misunderstood. The first is Catholic. Uh, in Latin and Greek, the term Catholic means universal. Now, almost nobody uses it that way today, uh, except in the Apostles' Creed, where uh, one of the last uh, affirmations is, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And, um, you know, from time to time, somebody will come up to me and say, uh, what, why do we say the Holy Catholic Church? Now, we don't say the Holy Catholic Church anymore when we say the uh, Apostles' Creed, because I just got tired of the question. So, like a lot of other Protestant churches, I changed it to be uh, the Holy Christian Church. Uh, when you hear the word Catholic, for the most part, it refers to the Roman Catholic denomination, the Roman Catholic Church. Not always, but technically the term means universal. The second word that is understood, um, maybe just not fully appreciated, is the word Protestant. It, it derives from the word protest. Uh, the Protestant Reformation is what happened when a bunch of protesters pushed for changes in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, 
arguing that these uh, needed to happen for the church to return to what the Bible called uh, the church to be and to what the early church had been like. Uh, Protestants do not, key point here, Protestants do not believe that they are, they are pushing the church forward. They always believe they're pushing the church back. They're trying to rediscover uh, what the church had initially been, what the Bible calls for the church to be. Uh, so they are protesting what they consider to be uh, things that were added. Third, the word reform in all of its uh, derivations. This term will show up, um, we'll talk about the Reformation, and we talk about the Reformers. Uh, and then there's also a descriptor of theology that's referred to as Reformed Theology. Tragically, this uh, is a word that is often um, has some surprising distinctions. So when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we're talking about the 16th century revolution that we have been talking about, right? The, the big pivot that started right after the Renaissance was launched uh, and, and everything is sort of pivoting in Western civilization. So I have noted that the, that the Reformation is not simply a Reformation of the church, that, uh, that the Reformation that takes place in the, uh, in the 16th century is gonna affect marriage and family and uh, economics, music, politics, art, and more. Um, it was a reformatting that many suggest give way to capitalism and individualism and uh, naturalism and subjectivism and more. So I keep saying this, by the way, I know that some people think I'm, I'm, just, I'm just being a pastor and overstating my point. Um, like, <laughs> Music changed, really? So the Reformation happens and music changes? Yeah, I mean, it changes. So um, in the church, the medieval church, uh, before the Reformation, only clergy sang. Uh, so only clergy, by the way, partook of both the bread and the wine. Uh, it was just the bread that was handed out to the laity. And only the clergy sang. There's just a bunch of stuff. There's a much bigger divide. And so only clergy sang. Luther uh, goes into the pubs where they are singing and he takes, um, he takes uh, and writes hymns that are going to profess uh, Protestant theology and teaches them in the pubs. And then he introduces uh, congregational singing. So lots of things are changing, right? The feudal system is dying. Nation states are coming along. There's a middle class rising up. The printing press is distributing information. Um, this is the age of discovery. All kinds of things are happening. It is a big revolution. So my point here is that um, the Reformation refers, on the one hand, to all of these things that are happening. And in that sense, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, is something that is bigger than a revival. <clears throat> Lots of times people will say, we should be praying for a revival. Sure, absolutely, but we don't simply want revival. We want reformation. We want, we want revival that leads to the kind of lasting reformatting of our lives and of our cultures. Um, so that's the reformation. When we talk about the reformers, we're talking about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and a bunch of others, uh, Busser and uh, Karlstadt and Melanchthon, and there's a whole bunch of people. Here's where it gets confusing. Um, when we talk about Reformed theology, we are talking about a bunch of different things. It's sort of like the word liberal. 
So liberal used to refer to a handful of principles of freedom and limited government and uh, uh, personal liberties that now generally sort of lines up a little bit more with the word conservative. Um, so when the word when somebody says the word liberal, you don't know if they're talking about a classic liberal or if they're talking about a more modern liberal, which is identified more with sort of a progressive or a leftist bent on social and cultural and political issues, or they could be talking about this 19th century theological movement called liberalism. So when you hear somebody use the word liberal, you don't know, what, what are they talking about? And you, you also don't know, do they even know what they're talking about? Do they even understand? Are they making a distinction between these things? So when it comes to reform, Here's the deal. There was reformed theology <laughs> happening 300 years before Luther in the monasteries. There were people trying to reform the Catholic Church. So it gets used one way referring to the, that stream of thought. Then there's, then there's all of the reformers, Luther included, that are referred to as reformed thinkers. <laughs> but most commonly, when the term Reformed theologians is used today, it is being used to refer to those who are going to side uh, and, and, and imbibe with the, the, the theological stream that's going to follow Calvin and others, who are going to emerge in the latter part of the 16th century, from whom Luther and the Lutherans, who, just to make this even more confusing, are not called Lutherans at the time, they're called evangelicals, but not evangelicals as today's evangelicals. But Luther and his stream uh, is going to differentiate themselves from uh, the Reformed theologians. And this has to do uh, with a handful of theological issues. So Calvin is the one that most people think of today as being the, the premier Reformed theologian. And Calvin... Uh, who's a contemporary of Luther's. He's going to come a little bit later. He's more of a systematic thinker. He's a, he's a, we'll do a whole, I'll do a whole podcast on, on Calvin. Calvin comes along uh, in Geneva. He's a humanist. Um, he's studying like Luther had been studying law. Luther didn't actually end up studying law, but Calvin does study law. And then he becomes a pastor in Geneva and a reformer, very bright, uh, much more of a systematic thinker and writer. He's going to write the Calvin's Institutes and other things. But Calvin, uh, when people talk about Calvinism, they're basically referring to his um, counterpoints to Jacob Arminius, um, who was a, uh, was a theologian who is going to argue a handful of points, and Calvin is going to counter them and, and Calvin's counter uh, takes the word tulip. If you've ever heard of the five points of Calvin, they represent, each of the five points of Calvin represent a letter in the word tulip. The T stands for total depravity, which means uh, not that we are as bad as we can be, but that every area of our life has been affected by sin. So our emotions, our intellect, our bodies, our spirits, every part of us. It's not that the, if, if, our, if, if we could be represented by a glass uh, of liquid, it's not that the glass is 100% poison, but it's that into a glass of water, poison was, uh, some poison was mixed, and so poison went throughout it, and the poison affects every sip you take. 
We're not utterly depraved, we're not as bad as we can be, but Calvin said we are, we are dead in our sins. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot contribute to our salvation. We are, we are totally dependent, totally depraved. The U stands for unconditional election, which means we don't pick God. God picks us. The L stands for limited atonement, which means Jesus dies on the cross for all the sins of everyone who's going to call out for him to, to be their savior, but not for anyone else. The I stands for irresistible grace, which means that if you have been uh, elected by God, that you cannot resist. Uh, he is going to win you over. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which means uh, if you have been if you have been saved, you will persevere. And if you fall away from the faith, it's that you were never saved. So these five points represent a counter-argument that, that Calvin is going to make uh, against a, a different stream of thought. All that to say, when people talk about Reformed theologians, for the most part today, they're talking about uh, the Presbyterian Church of America or the Orthodox Presbyterian Church or the Reformed denominations, which at least had as distinctives those theological points, which distinguishes them from, say, the Methodist Church or Wesleyan theology, which sort of lines up with the opposite of those five. So uh, when you hear the word reformed, it's, um, it can be very confusing and you have to listen carefully to figure out what people are talking about. The fifth confusing word uh, is the word magisterium. So magister in Latin refers to a teacher uh, and Roman Catholics will say that the Pope and the bishops uh, in, uh, in union with him have this authority uh, to interpret the Bible and uh, that there have been pronouncements that have come out of the councils and other things over the last 2,000 years. And collectively, these things uh, refer to, are, are grouped together and are called the magisterium. And it's sort of this, this uh, cachet of all the important teachings of the church. And that these things are, um, these things are binding and important. And this tradition of the church, the magisterium, is something that uh, Christians need to embrace. Protestants will say, uh, no. Uh, the, that in fact they're going to push back on this and say we've got to go back to the Bible alone. That's where we're going to get this word, um, the five solas. Sola is the last word, by the way. It means, uh, in Latin, it just means alone or only. We get our word solo from it. And uh, so Protestants are going to say that uh, we're not looking at the magisterium. Now, again, don't blame me, but there's also something called the magisterial reformers who are, <laughs> who are those Protestants who are going to have a certain view of the role of government that differs from the role of government that other reformers think they ought to have. So um, nobody consulted me when they started using these words to mean absolutely anything and everything. So. I will try and keep you uh, in, in the right lane as we go through this. I want to look now at these five slogans, these uh, five points uh, that, again, 
emerge at this particular uh, moment. And so we have to hear them in their historical context to appreciate uh, exactly what they mean. So the first, sola scriptura. Um, and by the way, so what we're going to say is that we are saved uh, uh, alone, is the word sola. So we're saved by uh, Christ alone, through grace alone, and faith alone, to the glory of God alone, uh, and on the authority of Scripture alone. So sola scriptura is, um, um, this is called the formal principle because it's, it's going to be the most important. The Reformation will start um, initially over salvation, like Luther's pushing back on Tetzel because he thinks that Tetzel is misrepresenting what you do in order to be reconciled to God. The debate is going to quickly go to uh, fighting over the true church. What is the church? Who is the real church? But ultimately, the debate is going to pivot around the issue of epistemology. How do we know what we know? Where do we go for answers? And there's going to be a, a disagreement here. The, the Catholic Church is going to argue for um, the Bible and for the magisterium or for the traditions or the Bible or the church's interpretation of the Bible, which uh, Protestants or the, the reformers are pushing back on. And they're going to say, no, um, sola scriptura. It's the Bible uh, alone. So uh, Protestants will say, that the Bible is the sole source of divine revelation, the only inspired, infallible, final, and authoritative norm of faith and practice. So, um, you have to understand, the, the issue is not over whether or not the Bible has authority. Roman Catholics always would say the Bible is divinely inspired, it's, it's, it, is, it, is, uh, it is God's book, it is you know, fully authoritative. Um, so that's not the, the question at hand. The issue at the time, and today this remains the issue, is whether or not the Bible is the final authority alone or if the traditions of the church stand alongside it. So what Luther and other reformers argued was that over time, through the councils, the pronouncements of the Pope, these papal decrees and other things, Rome had added doctrines to the church's teaching that were now considered as valid as the Bible. Things like purgatory, prayer to the saints, the perpetual virginity of Mary, these kinds of things they'd say, these are not found in the Bible. Additionally, the Roman Catholic Church was claiming, um, I shouldn't say additionally, I'd say in contrast, the Roman Catholic Church was claiming that their interpretation was right in such a way um, that they needed to be listened to. And the Protestants were pushing back on that and saying, no, it, we're not looking to the, to the governance that we find with the, 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 the um, church governance that we find located in Rome. We look only to the Bible and we all get to interpret the Bible. We don't have to follow what Rome is saying. Now, let me pause here to, to clarify with four points. Um, the, the, uh, the, the teaching of that it, it all gets posted together is what we're referring to as the magisterium, one of the words that I introduced. Secondly, 
the different approaches that are in play here, the Roman Catholic Church appearing to the magisterium and to, um, uh, and the reformers arguing for sola scriptura means that there's not only a disagreement over what is right, but there is this big disagreement over how we establish what is right. That's the crux of sola scriptura. Third, um, seeing all of this clearly, Luther sees all of this clearly for the first time during his debate with Eck at the disputation in Leipzig. Um, remember, he, he is uh, called onto the carpet. He's got to go to Leipzig, and there he ends up in a debate. And in the debate, he's expecting it to go one way, but in fact, it goes a very different way. And Eck, in a brilliant you know, sort of debating forensics move, he, he goes after Luther and he says, you don't think the Pope is to be trusted. This is what this comes down to. He's not sort of going to debate Luther on interpretations of the Bible. He says, you don't think the Pope is infallible. And that's when, when Luther uh, sort of gets backed into the corner and he comes out with that, you know, that big confession, ja, ich bin ein Husseit. Um, yes, I'm with John Huss. Now that I think about it, I do think the Pope can err. Given a choice between the Pope or the Bible, I'm picking the Bible. And uh, so, finally, the, the fourth clarification here is that um, you have to understand when we, when we use the phrase sola scriptura, so scripture alone, <laughs> it doesn't mean scripture alone. It means scripture and it means scripture alone as being the highest authority, not scripture and tradition as the Roman Catholics were arguing. However, the reformers are in favor of tradition. Uh, they would argue that, that you need to look back at, you look at scripture, you're doing your Bible study, you start with the Bible, but then you would look at the, 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 the writings of the people that have come before you. You would go back to the patristic theologians and some of the medieval theologians. So uh, they would also say that, that there's great value in, in the councils, the first six councils they line up with, and the creeds. They're going to have their own creeds. The, the, the Luther will work with Melanchthon and, and write the Augsburg Confession, which is sort of a summary of the critical teachings that will become the Lutheran uh, tradition. Then you're going to uh, have the Heidelberg Catechism. You're going to have the Westminster Confession. They'll have their own creeds. So they're not arguing um, against a tradition. They're just saying tradition is not on par with the Bible. Third point. If you talk to Catholics today, for the most part, they would agree with that statement. They would say tradition is not on par with the Bible. But there is going to be a, there's, there's daylight between what is meant when Protestants say that and when Catholics say that. Protestants will say, you say it's not tradition, but you've got all these things. You've got um, you know, this whole, uh, this whole structure with the Pope. You've got indulgences. You've got the treasury of merit. You've got all these things that were added, and you say they're absolutely true. And uh, the reformers want to push back on that. In, in uh, fairness to Roman Catholics, what they said then and what they will say today is, okay, you get rid of a central authority, like you get rid of the, the, the church's ability to to declare what is true, and you're going to end up with chaos. 
And today, I, I recently looked it up, there's like um, 4 million Protestant denominations, excuse me, 4 million Protestant congregations out there, 4 million Protestant churches out there, 38,000 different denominations. Now, in defense of Protestants uh, splitting, and there used to be a joke, humor is very, very complicated these days. I'm trying to think. Am I going to offend the wrong people here? I don't think so. Uh, uh, so there's, there used to be, I used to hear this joke, uh, what do you get when you got two Baptists in the room? Three churches, right? Uh, so Protestants can uh, splinter. And uh, in defense of Protestant splintering, it's always technically uh, over a secondary or a tertiary issue. Right, agreeing on the the five solas, agreeing on the main points, agreeing on you know the the, the big uh, doctrines, but disagreeing over things that you say these are not critical issues. Now you can have first order fights over second order issues, and we certainly have all seen that. Um, so, uh, but but the Catholics will push back and say once you say anybody can interpret the Bible you're going to end up with a lot of crazy-making out there. And uh, there's some crazy-making, to be sure. Uh, and then let me note that um, there are Protestants who did not read the memo and who will say that sola scriptura means only the Bible. The only thing we look at is the Bible. Now, uh, they'll, and they'll even say, no creed but Jesus, which is really ironic because that's a creed. <laughs> like... I don't even know how to start the conversation with you. You're, that's a self-stultifying statement. No creed but Jesus. That's a creed. That's a statement of what you believe. And so there are, um, we, and, and by the way, you have to use reason to establish that. Remember the four sources of authority, revelation, the Bible, tradition, reason, excuse me, yes, reason and experience. Those are the four Things that we refer to, those are the four ways we argue our points for what we think is true. So um, there are people that are going to say it's only the Bible, that's, the, that's all we need to pay attention to, but that's, that's not what the Protestant reformers were saying. So, um, by the way, I would argue in a longer uh, podcast that the Bible is very clear in establishing the Bible as the final authority, and I would also argue that that's what we see in the early church. Now, uh, second, sola, sola fides, uh, or by faith alone. So this is called the material cause of the Reformation, um, and it's, it's where we go to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is a key, a key point of contention between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, and it remains a point of contention today. Um, Luther went so far as to say that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. In other words, if you give up this doctrine, you're not truly a church. Now, in order to understand the flashpoint here, you've got to understand two different things that are going on in, the, in, this, in this debate. The first is the different ways the word justification is being used. Uh, the second is the importance of the word alone. So, Roman Catholic doctrine of justification 
uh, as expressed uh, coming out of the Council of Trent, which is, is what is written at the uh, Roman Catholic Reformation Council. So after the Protestant Reformation, when, when it's uh, established that the Protestants and Catholics are not going to get back together, uh, there is this council, uh, the Council of Trent. And coming out of the Council of Trent, the uh, Catholic uh, counter-reformers, again, that's what it used to be called, but the Roman Catholic reformers will issue this, this uh, confession, this, this set of beliefs. And part of what they are going to do is redefine their terms and, and, uh, and largely double down against the reformers. There's a few points of concession, but not, not many. Um, so what they're going to say at this, um, at this council is that um, justification is the process by which we are made just. Uh, that is, that it is the process whereby uh, through an infusion of grace, through following the sacramental system, after baptism, we actually become righteous. And so we are justified when we become righteous. And there may, it may not be something that ever gets finished, and so you got to go to purgatory afterwards and continue to, you know, to what, what wasn't uh, completely taken care of by penance. But... Um, this is what Luther is reacting to when he has his eureka moment on Romans 1.17. Remember, he's in the, the tower there in the castle, and he's studying Romans. He's teaching it now as a professor, and he's wrestling with this, this passage he hates because he feels like it condemns him. For, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He hears that, um, that, that Jesus reveals the standard and that he is by faith through the process of being a Christian and penance and all these things. He's supposed to rise up to the level of Jesus. He doesn't see that happening in his life. And so he feels like he is uh, failing and he's at risk of losing his salvation uh, and being dismissed by, um, by, uh, by God. And so this is what he is contending. The reformers are going to say, no, it's not, justification does not mean that we are made just. It means we are declared just. It is a legal ruling. The process of sanctification is not one that will be completed this side of, uh, of the grave. But, but after we die, we are glorified, and that is when our, our um, sanctification is completed. And we are now, um, our sanctification and our, our legal status having been justified are the same. We are perfect. But when we are declared righteous, the, it is because of the, the, uh, the righteousness of Christ that is not uh, it's not that the grace is, in, is infused into us. It's that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we talk about the great exchange, a double imputation. My sin is imputed, transferred to Jesus. His righteousness is transferred to me. So I am now, when God looks at me, I, I have the righteousness of Jesus. It's just not that my sins are gone. 
It's that I actually get credit as if I had lived a perfect life. So to be justified is not, it's, it's not a standard that is uh, being thrown down for me to live up to by Jesus. It's a, it's a gift. It's a donation uh, that is made by Jesus. So very different understandings of justification. Additionally, uh, the, the Protestants will say that the, that, the, that the Catholic Church says that you are justified by, by Jesus, right? by, by Jesus' example and by the grace extended by Jesus, but that you also have to add to that by being baptized and living a good life and following the sacrificial system and all these other things. So they're going to push back on uh, all of that. The, what the Protestants are going to say, what Luther in, in particular is going to say, is that um, have, after justification, we are uh, simul justus et peccator. Uh, so simul is the, is the Latin word uh, from which we get our English word simultaneously. So we are simultaneously, at the same time, we are uh, just, that's the word uh, justus, we are righteous, we are, uh, we are declared, you know, legally uh, perfect. Uh, et, that's uh, past tense uh, of the word to eat. Yes, have you et your dinner? No. That was a bad joke. I apologize. Rewind the tape. Um, it's actually not my joke, by the way. That's somebody else's joke. Um, but et uh, comes from, it just means and. Uh, if you, I just finished uh, reading about the assassination of Julius Caesar in this Robert Harris trilogy that I'm continuing to try and get through. Um, and as Caesar is, is been, you know, the knife has been plunged into him, he looks at uh, Brutus. A tu Brute, uh, you also, et, et tu Brute, you as well, you're also turning against me. So et means and, so simul justus et peccator, sinner. So at the same time, we are a sinner, and we are justified. So um, uh, I, I trust that you see how much is in play here uh, with these distinctions between, um, between the, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant understanding of justification. Moving on, three more, we'll take these quickly. Uh, sola gratia, here's where we make a distinction between um, the, the two equations I often talk about saying, uh, on the one hand, you have the equation that says faith plus works equals salvation. And you say, that's not it. That, that, would be a, that would be in alignment with what the Roman Catholic Church would teach, my understanding of what the Roman Catholic Church would teach. And I would say, no, the equation is faith equals salvation plus works. Works matter, works are important, works, uh, as James says, faith without works is dead. If there is no works, then you don't actually have saving faith because um, the works matter. By the way, as much as we say we are not saved, we are saved by grace, not by works, we're saved by works. <laughs> right, the whole point here is we're saved by the works of Jesus. It's just, it's not our works. It's an alien righteousness, not our own righteousness. So, um, this, by the way, uh, this idea, the reformers will say, this is what Augustine was talking about. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. It is, it is not our contribution. They'll go back to Augustine 
and Augustine's debate with Pelagius, right? The, the guy that comes down, the, the British guy that comes down and argues with, uh, with uh, Augustine in the fifth century and says, you're talking all this stuff about grace. You know, people need to live a morally righteous life. And Augustine writes against them, writes, all, writes against Pelagius. That's the title of, of some set of works that he does. He says, no, we are saved by grace alone. So the reformers, again, are arguing. We're just going back to what Paul wrote in Romans and in Ephesians. We're going back to what Augustine wrote, right? We're, we're not arguing for new stuff. Number four uh, sort of goes uh, together with this, um, with number three. This is solus uh, Christus. So we're saved by uh, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so there's no disagreement between Protestants and Catholics on who Jesus is, uh, both affirming the Nicene Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian definition. So there's no disagreement on who Jesus is. The disagreement is over uh, the work of Christ and whether that is uh, complete and anything needs to be added to it uh, or not. And then finally, it's for the glory of God alone. Um, and this one's sort of a little bit different. Um, not many people write about this. Um, as I was <laughs> reading other lectures and, and looking at sections in books, uh, people often have a much shorter section on the glory of God alone. And it basically is just saying, um, because it doesn't, it doesn't parallel the other four, it's basically just saying everything is done to the glory of God alone. Some will say um, it's to the glory of God uh, and the reformers were saying not to the glory of the Pope or not to the glory of the saints or not to the glory of Mary. It's just to God alone. Others will just highlight the fact that uh, our salvation um, is actually for God's glory. Our benefit that comes out of our salvation is a wonderful side benefit. But God saves us in part for his own glory. That's the principal thing. So everything everywhere belongs to God. It's all about God uh, not about us. Well, um, there are some other matters that, that go on that, that um, uh, we're going to continue looking at uh, the Reformation because we're, we're going we're to pick up on other reformers now. Uh, but you should know there's other, there's other ways that Protestants and Catholics are going to disagree. Once Luther comes back from uh, the Wartburg Castle, his year out, uh, he's going to initially sort of roll back all of the changes uh, that, that are taking place in Wittenberg where his uh, lieutenants have sort of, um, he thinks, gone too far. He's going to roll them back. Um, uh, but then over time, he's going to jump in and start to create what he thinks the, the Reformed Church should look like. And he's going to contest, again, um, clergy celibacy, that idea. He's going to change what the worship service looks like. You're going to have this argument for the priesthood of all believers. Um, and uh, you're also going to see the distinction between the sacraments. Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments. The Protestant Church has two. The Protestants will say, we see Jesus uh, commissioning both baptism and Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Um, we don't see these others. Um, we, don't, we don't see him establishing them as sacraments. There's also going to be a disagreement over, over the efficacy of the sacraments. So some Protestants will refer to the sacraments, baptism, and communion as being symbolic only. Others will see them as sacraments, that is a means of grace, there's a blessing that is, that is inferred, imparted in this, but not a saving um, a means of grace, just a means of grace. So there's more there, but I hope um, 
you understand how big the Reformation is. And I also hope you also understand this with some humility and that you understand that it's not, in one sense, over. I will leave you with um, this Ecclesia Reformation.